You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. We're going to talk about, by the first hour and a half, the book that Bud Hopkins wrote called Art, Life, and UFOs, a memoir by Anomalous Books. Art, Life, and UFOs is much more than the UFO book. It's a heartfelt look back at the remarkable career of Bud Hopkins, the renowned abstract expressionist painter whose work can be found in the collections of the Guggenheim, Whitney, and Metropolitan Museums. That's pretty big, nice places there, as well as Boston's Museum of Fine Arts and New York's Museum of Modern Art. Hopkins not only explains the development of his work and how it will would eventually reflect his UF, UFO interests, but friendships with senior, uh, other seniors and, and artists, as well as the importance of uh, other UFO researchers. Are you there, Bud Hopkins? I certainly am. I'm glad to be with you. And you're pitching arms pretty good tonight, huh? Oh, I guess so. Yeah, I <laughs> thought so. You got a good curveball. You know, I... I'm not trying to exaggerate the abilities there. But you are a good swimmer, aren't you? Uh, well, you know, I, I've had a, I've had a complex uh, time here <laughs> in my life. You sure have. And as a matter of fact, we're going to talk about a number of yeah. those things. Now, after having written four books uh, that are absolutely focused on UFO abduction phenomenon, why did you decide to write a personal memoir that more or less covers your entire life? Well, actually, uh, I began to think that there were so many uh, kind of interesting and formative experiences I'd been through, uh, both with uh, how the UFO uh, abduction phenomenon kind of unfolded in my life, and of course my my life as a as a painter in New York City and so on. And I thought that uh, to uh, pass on, and of course uh, I'm. 78, which is kind of scary, two years short of 80, which is uh, a little disturbing. To pass on and have this disappear was just something that I thought was intolerable. I wanted to get it down and get it out uh, because I thought it would be interesting to other people and also it would explain how my life had had its complicated um, branches intertwined over many, many years. Mm-hmm. Yes, it certainly has. We're going to start from the very beginning. When you were just a couple of years old, you note that the depredations of polio led you to become an artist. How so? Well, it's, the polio led me to, uh, eventually to become an artist in a very com- complex way. It's not a straight line. But uh, I contracted polio uh, when I was two and a half. I have almost no memories of that. Uh, but I was um, uh, unable to walk for for a year and a half or two years. Uh, my leg and a right leg and a brace and so forth. And uh, I had to in those years as a little kid, when I should have been this very active toddler, tearing around and getting into trouble. I was uh, restricted to wherever I was uh, put by my mother, and my father. Mm-hmm. And I had to kind of invent a world that was uh, not any farther away than my uh, length of my arms and my fingertips. And I began to uh, make things and sketch, as make, make terrible drawings and scroll as a little child and so forth. And um, I think that somehow uh, when you're thrown back on your own inner resources like this, uh, it's just a straight line from that to becoming an artist. Uh, living in a in a, a world where I had a studio, and within those four walls, eventually, I made my art. Was like an adult version of of living uh, somewhere in a playroom with uh, my arms reaching out to do whatever make whatever I could make close to me. So I think there's there's something in that, and also. To turn it around upside down, um, the idea that uh, other kids and normal people and so forth, and my sister and brother, were mobile and active and so on, made me feel somehow that my own body, my own physicality was uh, not to be trusted. Uh, first of all, it was pretty terrible when I was very small with this, with the 
brace on my leg and so on. So I didn't get involved in physical things uh, easily. So ultimately, when one thing led to another, I ended as an artist. Well, as you noted, you exercised your creativity the way other people ex- exercise their arms and legs learning to use my developing imagination to build a complex. And then then another aspect of it, This um, we're going to stay in your childhood just a little bit more, okay? Um, how, how did the order of your miniature domain affect your aesthetic of the paintings you did later on in life? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting thing and something I didn't really examine until I began writing this book. And one of the things, Dr. Bob, about writing a memoir is that uh, things that have been just on, uh, you've placed on some kind of really back shelf of your mind to gather dust. Uh, Suddenly you blow off the dust and take that thing out and examine it and say, yeah, I never realized that. And this is what happened. I began to remember that when I was very little, and I, that my mother would put me down outside. Uh, this was on a trip to Florida where they took me to uh, exercise my leg. Florida was was seen as the cure for everything. So oh, oh. still is. Taken, <laughs> it is the cure I was taken down there, and uh, at any rate, they would plump me down in this little yard, and there was a, a very sharp uh edge to the sidewalk and a very sharp edge to where the little plants started in this front yard and so forth. And I began to to really enjoy edges mm-hmm. and sharp distinctions between one area and another area. And I realized that that was very strong with me. As a matter of fact, a very peculiar thing is I can drive by a certain kind of house nowadays, and this happens rarely, but I'll look over at a house and there's some way in which uh, the driveway has been lined with stones to make a very clear edge, and there there are very precise uh, plantings which define one area and another, and I get a kind of little thrill yeah. at, at the definition. Mm-hmm. And I really think that this idea of clarity and definitions and edges uh, was with me from those early years, and it, it became uh, a, a, an element when I started to uh, a paint what are called more hard edge paintings, uh, I began to really exult in the idea of separations and boundaries. Well, yeah, these are great insights. I wish many of us could have those kind of insights as to when we were two and a half years old and what effect it is. I mean, you know, that's a, that is really, uh, it seems very rational and seems very reasonable, but still at the same time, it's great to know that maybe that's what it, you know, I became an artist when I put, when I was sitting in the bathtub, I put glasses on Donald Duck. I drew him on there, and I knew it. I knew, <laughs> I knew right then that that was it. Well, anyway, now I, I think you're kidding, but the point is, uh, what you've got to do, Doctor Bob, you got to write your own memoir, and you'll understand the phenomenon. Well, that's what we actually you're reading our minds because that's exactly what we have been working on. Now, Orson Welles Radio. We're going to stay. You're still about what somewhere around nine, eleven years old. I think nine or eleven. Eight years old. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, Orson Welles. Excuse me, excuse me, seven. It was oh. 1938, and I was born 31. Okay, all right. You're seven years old. Orson Welles' radio program, War of the Worlds, affected your personal views about the acceptance of UFOs being extraterrestrial. How come? What happened? Right, well, what happened was uh, I was, uh, I had been put to bed and so on, and I began to hear door, uh, uh, phones ring in my parents' bedroom and whispered uh, worried remarks and so on, and suddenly I realized something very bad was happening. And at seven, of course, you don't know very much <laughs> about uh, bad things. But what happened was um, the my parents came into my room. to My father wanted to look out the window to see what he could see. They had been uh, told to listen to this program by some neighbor, and the, the whole uh, town, uh, the whole culture in a way was absolutely shaken up by this. And my mother was weeping. She was in a state of panic. And uh, I heard you know, somebody say the world's coming to an end. And, uh, you know, you can't imagine how that affects a seven-year-old. Sure. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what that means exactly, but it, you know it's terrible. And uh, 
ultimately, when it emerged that this had been a hoax, you know, essentially, that's to put the worst possible uh, adjective uh, noun attached to it, a hoax rather than just a straight radio play. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was this entire, practically nationwide revulsion against uh, against Orson Welles and against the program. There were stories, uh, I don't know that they were ever confirmed, that people committed suicide or people had heart attacks and, and, and so forth because of the realism of the program. And one of the things that happened in my own personal life was to realize that my father, who I always thought was a rock and you know brave and so forth, I, I saw him as being a terrified person. Uh, although he was putting a, a great face on it, but um, your father so was a ha- colonel. Your father was a colonel in the army. At the, yeah, he'd yeah. been at that point. He'd been in World War One. This is 1938, and um, he was very brave, and uh, you know he had a purple heart and and ribbons and so forth, medals. And he here he was scared to death, and my mother had just completely collapsed into into tears and panic. And just to give you an idea which I mentioned in the book, he had gotten a phone call during this program from uh, an employee of his who begged him to, my father, to put the family in a car and join him with rifles and ammunition. He, the, uh, Mr. Buck, the employee, had uh, packed the car with his, I'm sure, weeping wife and terrified kids, and he had uh, boxes of ammunition and rifles and food, and he was going up on top of a very high hill to make a stand. Wanted my father to come, which my father, thank God, didn't do. But it gives you an idea of how this affected people. And my basic thought about this was, which is, I think, important for the UFO phenomenon, perhaps has been overlooked a little too much, was that in 1947, which was only nine years later at Roswell, and in 47 when there were so many reports of UFOs, nobody wanted to accept the idea that there was anything real about this that was extraterrestrial because having been fooled once, nobody wanted to be fooled twice. And so I think that in a strange way, the uh, Orson Welles program set back the acceptance of the UFO phenomenon amongst the public uh, many, many years. It was a very destructive thing in, in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Wow, that, that's really a good insight because I know most other UFO researchers never would have conceived that that might be a problem at all. Uh, but that made you feel like these kind of things are, are basically hoaxes to begin with, so why worry about them at all? It was, as you note in the book, it's the same kind of thing that we went through with eight years of there's no such thing as global warming. Yeah, and now course. many people are feeling that uh, they are, you know, that there is none, and they're going to be pretty surprised. Uh, <laughs> if we're not already surprised watching the weather patterns change all over the planet. Uh, We're going to take our break here with Bud Hopkins' Art, Life, and UFOs, a memoir, anomalous books. Order from Amazon by clicking the link at 21stCenturyRadio.com. This is John Schusler, International Director for the Mutual UFO Network, and you are listening to the 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Okay, now... Here we find you. You're going to college now. I just love the story of your college situation and how, <laughs> how your dad got fooled with that, but we can't get into that. Yeah, that oh, that was great. That, that <laughs> There's a lot of humor in this book. Well, Oberlin College introduced you to 20th century arts and Corot. How, how did this affect your life when, you, when you're bumping into Corot and, and other folks there at uh, Oberlin? Well, the thing is... Uh... Uh, Dr. Bob, as a kid uh, and as a teenager and so forth, I was always drawing. And um, I drew, uh, during World War II, I drew uh, uh, Messerschmitts and Hurricanes and Muskangs and airplanes and so forth. And um, I used to draw parts of members of my family. Um, as I said in the book, uh, mostly my grandmother because she was asleep a lot and so she was a great model. <laughs> But the point is that I didn't know anything about art, capital A, art. I didn't know anything about, uh, shall we say, Cezanne or Picasso or Van Gogh or, you know, you name it. I think I'd heard the name Rembrandt. But when I got to Oberlin, not knowing what I was going to major in, I stumbled into a uh, an art history class 
I had a friend of mine said, it's great, you go in and you look at these nice pictures, you can go to sleep if you need to. And I walked into this class, and the first lecture was on Corot, and I was totally, totally blown away. These things were so beautiful. And the uh, man giving the lecture, uh, named Seymour Slive, was such a uh, kind of charismatic speaker. And I'm, I'm looking at all these things, and what I started to do was to copy the slides quickly, sketches, uh, as they went by which is quite a job because you don't know how long something's going to be on the screen. And uh, I suddenly discovered uh, the seriousness of art and, and how important so many major figures were. And I realized that this is not something that's just a hobby like I had been treating it uh, in my life, but this was, this was some, one of the most important things anybody could do. And I started, uh, at that point, I started working uh, as an artist and, and sketching and drawing, and I took art courses, and I took everything I could take at Oberlin that had to do with art, even a philosophy course. And um, Robert Motherwell came out to uh, give some lectures and uh, on contemporary art and showed slides of uh, Willem de Kooning and Franz Klein and Jackson Pollock, Robert and, and uh, Rothko and so forth, and Mondrian. And I was totally captivated because I didn't know anything about any of this. Uh, this was, say, 1952. And, uh, God, it's, uh, what, 57 years ago, if my math is correct. And uh, Just a half a century ago. Uh, yes, at least. I didn't do too well in math. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, I just, at that point, knew I was an artist. That was it. And that's when I really started working intensely on my own. Well, as you know, um, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about abstract expressionism in just a minute. But at college, you became involved with the fundamentalist fundamentalist Christianity. How, how did Van Gogh, uh, there's so many ways I've heard of pronouncing his last name, yeah. but I'm not going to spit it out. I'm just going to say, how did Van Gogh disengage you from that? Well, uh this is, of course, a fairly long story, which I go into at length, how I got involved in uh, sort of essentially moral issues that I interpreted in a religious framework, which was a mistake, as I realized in retrospect. And when I got to Oberlin, there was this group of uh, fundamentalists who kind of um, gravitated to, to young um, students who were lonely and didn't know anybody and so on like me. And um, so I was kind of brought into this fold, um, not in a, an intense way, but uh, it, it waxed and waned, and sometimes I would be very involved, sometimes I w wouldn't be. But as my whole world of, of, the, of seeing art and, and practicing art became more intense, uh, I re remember asking one of these uh, sort of leaders who was attached to the school, he was an adult, um, and their whole thing was whether or not you uh, believed in Jesus or not, or you wouldn't go to heaven if you didn't. And then I began talking about Van Gogh, and I said I didn't think that he had ever, uh, as it were, made the, taken the pledge, then <clears throat> would he go to heaven or not? And uh, because I had this enormous respect for him as a, as a great humanist. And they said, no, if he didn't take the pledge, he's, he, he's going to burn in hell. And that, that did it. I thought, I'm not going to be involved with an organization that puts that kind of um, absolute joining up and, and taking pledges and so forth uh, as a mark of, of, of going to heaven rather than burning in hell. So I... I was out the door, thanks to Van Gogh, in a strange way. Well, you know, as you not just burn in hell, you burn in hell forever. Yep. I mean, that's a long time. That's a long time. And for for making a, a series of mistakes in one particular lifetime, that doesn't, to me, I've never thought that was too fair. But <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but we don't make the rules and regulations. But that's right. But but, uh, but you know, I think the one's actions 
in, in, to, in, in assisting and helping other people, a service to others, selfless service, which you have performed a billion five hundred and ninety-two times, I understand, uh, is much more important to me than, than that thinking that that's the way to get in. I know Thomas Jefferson didn't think that, and that's one of the reasons why he did what he did with his Bible. So, yeah. you know, let's listen to what Jesus said, not let's, not, not let's listen to what everybody else said that Jesus said. There's a big difference there. Okay, now, you, you mentioned Robert Motherwell and, and abstract expressionism. Tell us about that particular style, or that, I wouldn't want to call it a style, but that type of consciousness, the abstract expressionism in art. Right. The thing is about abstract expressionist painting was it was the, it was the first kind of innovative movement in American art uh, after the many movements that Europe had gone through impressionism, uh, post-impressionism, Cubism, Fauvism, etc. Uh, American art was sort of in the shadow of Europe, but abstract expressionism, which really uh, started in a certain sense in the late. 40s and uh, reached a, a peak in the early 50s, which was the time I was involved with it uh, most intensely, was a way in which you painted abstractly and you painted um, rather impulsively out of uh, gestures and marks, which you ultimately uh, were able to structure into uh, a, a composition, which was emotional, filled with energy, and uh, apparently, hopefully, expressed your, uh, your values. Uh, mm-hmm. These paintings were a, a way in which you were somehow expressing your deepest feelings on canvas, not through imagery that was realistic, uh, no still lifes or whatnot, but this was a way in which um, just forms and colors and the impulse of uh, the marks that you put down were an index into the kind of person you were, the emotion you felt. And I know this sounds uh, very ephemeral and so forth, but uh, in a way, a lot of people made the analogy with music that, uh, you know, Mozart didn't sit down with a symphony and say, this is supposed to be uh, a, a bubbling brook, or this is a motorcycle starting up, or this is people talking or something. You know, it was... It was pure music, and uh, abstract expressionism was, in a certain sense, pure painting. And it it showed a way out for somebody, uh, for me as a young artist, it it gave me a way of making paintings that were, uh, as far as I was concerned, authentic to my inner feelings. And I know this sounds hopelessly... uh, (laughs) soft and vague, but it really wasn't. No, it doesn't sound... No, I don't think so, but I think it doesn't sound soft and vague, especially because of your experience in it and personally knowing and working under, studying, befriending some of the greatest, uh, in my opinion, some of the greatest artists that ever lived on this planet. Uh, you, 1952, artist Robert Motherwell came to Oberlin, um, and you, you made a connection with him, as a matter of fact, a, a lasting connection with him. What what kind of, how would you look at Robert Motherwell in relationship to other abstract expressionists? Well, Motherwell was, first of all, uh, an extremely uh, intelligent man. I mean, one would call him an intellectual. And, you know, very often people refer to artists and intellectuals as if they're two different groups. Um, and with him, they were, he was, he was absolutely both. Uh, he was a, uh, a Harvard graduate. He had studied philosophy. He, he came from a very wealthy background. He was a very gracious and and um, a very complex person. And uh, I didn't connect with him uh, on a personal way until many years later. Uh, the funny thing was, when I got to New York, which is what I wanted to do immediately after I graduated from Oberlin, um, I met many of the other abstract expressionists who I became friendly with, uh, Franz Klein in particular, Mark Rothko. Um, I had my paths crossed with Jackson Pollock and so forth, although he was in terrible shape uh, when I got to New York. But uh, I didn't get connected with uh, Motherwell until many years later. But he was, uh, as far as I was concerned, 
an extremely literate, interesting man on many, many levels. Well, there is a bar, the Cedar Bar, <laughs> that actually, um, I guess you might call it like a, a home, a home <laughs> for the, the uh, many abstract expressionists. And, uh, I, you know, you provide so many insights into the lives and tragedies of many of these abstract expressionists. Uh, expressionist legends mark rothko boy what you revealed there and examining his work and then think and, and getting into it possibly being related to the graves in russia really wow that really got me yeah well that's a that's a uh, an insight that uh, i i think hasn't been uh recognized uh, as it should although uh the biography written about um Roscoe, they, when they interviewed me, they, that was included, uh, that, that mm -hmm. particular anecdote. But the point is that the, uh, everybody was, was poor, everybody was broke, everybody felt very isolated in 1953 when I first got to New York. And the Cedar Bar was a sort of a refuge, a clubhouse or something. Uh, it was sort of like, I suppose, some of the cafes were for the Cubists or the, before that the Impressionists and so on in France, but uh, it was a kind of amazing place. There are many, many extremely funny stories. And Oh, and you had some great ones in there. You really do, did. Uh, but well, I was going to mention something about Jackson Pollock there, but you gave me insight into this uh, artist uh, that I just never, and, and a lot of laughter as, as he gets introduced to various young ladies and approaches them in different ways. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> I guess when he had to go to the men's room, he went to the men's room. There's nothing about that, I mean, you know, right? But I'm so tempted to spend the rest of our program on on the, these individuals. But yep. we we got to move on to another most important aspect of your life work in UFOs. And we're going to take our break here. And when we come back, I'm going to... I'm going to quiz you. I hope you can remember this part, okay? Remember, <laughs> you can remember all your book, can't you? I hope you can. I, I think I can. All right, but, <laughs> but you note that in the New York art world, there was a general indifference to politics and non-visual arts. That This, you really educated the hell out of me in regards to this, as, as well as finally I understood why the abstract expressionists and the beats didn't have much in common at all, which shocked me. A uh, long time ago, but now I can understand it a little bit better, and we're going to find out those things when our guest, Bud Hopkins, returns art, life, and UFOs, because we're getting into the UFOs part of it, friends. It's a memoir, anomalous books. You can order from Amazon by clicking the link on 21stCenturyRadio.com. Hello, this is nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman, the original investigator of the Roswell incident. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Oh, welcome back. Our guest is Bud Hopkins, Art, Life, and UFOs, a memoir, anomalous books. Go to 21stCenturyRadio.com and uh, click on that, and you'll find the book. Who's doing that music there? What is that? It's not, the... it's not Tommy Dorsey. Who is that, Dr. Cortner? Oh, Jean-Michel. Oh, yeah. Eight years of French, and I can't even speak it. Well, Bud, Bud yes. did you do enough studying for this to answer this question? You note that in the uh, New York art world, there was a general indifference to politics and the non-visual arts. Why? Well, I think that one of the things that happened uh, was that um, uh, artists were afraid to vote because you had to give your address, and most people were living in illegally zoned uh, loft buildings. Yeah. Uh, which meant that they were, uh, if they were caught, they could be evicted. And <laughs> that right. gave a very powerful reason not to register to vote. Yeah, I'll say. That yeah. was one thing. Mm -hmm. And second, of course, when I got to, to uh, uh, New York, it was the beginning of the Eisenhower administration, and I think everybody was pretty depressed about that. And um, nobody had any kind of enthusiasm for uh, Eisenhower Nixon. And... Um, so there was, it just sort of got relegated to the sidelines for most people. And, uh, you know, I always thought that the, let's see, I guess that I'm 11 years younger than you are. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I always thought that because every time I went up to the village, it was a little bit different, and that's for sure. 
uh, that the uh, abstract expressionists and the Beats would have would have had a lot in common, but but they don't really, they don't. Well, it, it's I, I think everybody sort of stuck with painting as the central thing. There were artists who were involved with poetry and um, a few and. Um, uh, a, a, a number of them were read, readers, uh, but there were a number who I never saw with a book ever. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, it's, uh, I think it was just, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I have over the years met uh, a few classical musicians, and uh, I, I have found in my tiny little sample of whom I met that uh, there wasn't a huge amount of reading going on of, of uh uh, or political involvement amongst classical musicians. They practice all day and perform all night. And I think artists are like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you had an experience with Jack Kerouac, and, and you nearly came to blows with him. And I think he kind of, uh, kind of represented the kind of conduct one has in relationship to when one becomes famous. Yeah. Not necessarily good, but famous. Um, uh, would you care to say anything about that particular experience? Well, uh, it's just a, a, a ships of passing the night kind of thing. But uh, I was at a party <clears throat> with my um, new wife, and we were both pretty young. She was probably uh, 19 or so, and I was <laughs> 24, 25, 26, whatever. And uh, Kerouac was there with some of his cohorts, and uh, he started, uh, as they say, hitting on uh, Joan. And when I was uh, not present, I was getting a drink or something. And when I came back, he more or less asked me to leave and you know, get away because he, or he was, uh, he had the uh, most attractive uh, youngest woman there. He was carrying on, and she was quite terrified. So I said, "This is my wife," and I took her by the arm and. He started, uh, he was pretty drunk, carrying on and, <clears throat> and um, following me as if he was going to start a fight. Now, there's an interesting quota to this. Uh, recently, I met, um, again, um, a, um, uh, a, a musician uh, at whose house I think this was. Uh, now I'm trying to think of his name. But at any rate, um, we were comparing notes, and he had been a very close friend of Kerouac's. And he, when I told him this, this story, because it had happened in his apartment, uh, he said, uh, but I knew him extremely well, and I spent many, many hours doing exactly the same thing, trying to prevent a fight mm-hmm. and pull him away from somebody who he was, uh, as they say, hitting on. I think it was just a... Uh, a kind of arrogance that uh, he was the big star, and he, you know, on the road had been written and so forth. Uh, he might have been a very decent person when he wasn't drunk or something, but I, I didn't. I never saw that aspect because I didn't know him. Well, I don't think too many people saw that side of him. <laughs> no, he, he was really, for some peculiar reason, yeah. uh, before I read your book, uh, I just listened again to "On the Road," and I just was just the. Uh, it's amazing what I forgot about it. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not sure I forgot about it. And, and what, a, what a what a messed up group of folks they were at that particular time. Oh, they were. Time. They, they, <laughs> they were. Yeah, I mean, they, their whole ethical whatever is just uh, was out the window as far as I was concerned. Now, when let's get now we're going to get back to UFOs for good. You uh-huh. first your first UFO sighting happened in August 1964. Yeah. What happened? Well, I, I think I should say my first and only. Okay, you can say that. <laughs> well, go ahead. Are you going to tell us about it? Uh, right. This was in uh, 1964, and um, at that point I had absolutely no knowledge of the subject or interest in it or anything. And I was driving to uh, on Cape Cod uh, to Provincetown for a party with my wife and a, and a friend who was visiting us. And we all were chatting away, and suddenly... It became clear that we'd sort of stopped talking and we're looking up at, in the air. And this is five in the afternoon, a very clear day, and there was this uh, object, uh, which, from our point of view on high ground, it looked lens-shaped in silhouette, and it was um, 
like a dull aluminum in color. And it was uh, apparently hovering or moving very slowly. And we started in usual, what, what, what is that thing, you know? And um, as we moved ahead and went down to lower ground, uh, we were at that point looking up at it from a steeper angle, and it looked circular from underneath. And we were very perplexed and getting more and more curious, and I was going very slow in the car. And um, uh, suddenly the thing started to move, and uh, I stopped the car. We were going very slowly anyway. We all jumped out, and this thing zoomed off into the clouds that were coming in from the ocean. And that's when somebody said, uh, you suppose that was one of those flying saucers you used to hear about. I mean, nobody had any idea. And in retrospect, as we drove away, we, we were all excited and talking about it, like, what, what was that thing? And uh, it was able to move straight into the wind at the speed of an airplane. So this wasn't a balloon or anything, and, uh, but it had no identifying features. So when we went to the party in, in um, Provincetown, we excitedly told some people, who, friends, about what we'd seen, and suddenly two or three friends would say, gee, you know, I, three years ago I saw such and such, and I found that a number of people had had similar kinds of sightings. And I thought, what's, what's going on here? Is this a, some sort of real thing, phenomenon that we didn't know about? And that uh, really a sort of... Um, lit the fuse under me, I suppose. And what I did from that point on, from 64 until 75, when I got really, really involved actively, was I watched uh, everything that turned up on television. I read whatever books I could find uh, to uh, give myself more information. The more I read about it, the more I realized, this is real. This is this, These things are real. They're flying around. And I was pretty convinced when I first saw it that this thing was so unusual that it wasn't some kind of earthly uh, manifestation airplane or anything. Mm. Well, as you note, uh, he said, from the vantage of the present, I can easily see an analogy with my continuing interest in UFOs in 1964 and the indifference almost everyone else displayed, particularly those colleagues of mine in the art world. Absolutely. And that's exactly that's still happening today. <laughs> yeah, right. But it was it was uh, it was very upsetting that I'm I'm thinking here is this you know like possibly enormous thing issue, possibly very enormous issue. You know, yeah, like like, like one of the greatest issues. Period. Uh, absolutely, yeah. and I couldn't get very many people to be interested either. One of my friends said, well, but I, it's not that I don't believe you, but he said, until I can kick the tires on one of those things, I won't believe it. That's right. Well, he's not going to get a chance to do that, because I don't <laughs> think they got any tires to kick. I don't think so. Now, we're going to need, obviously, we just have a few seconds. Is that right? No, about 30 seconds. When we return, uh, looking into this UFO, this, the, that particular UFO sighting um, may have affected your painting. We need to touch on that. And... Then the November 1975 George Obarski UFO encounter in North Hudson Park. We need to check that oil, as we used to say back in the old days. With Bud Hopkins' Art, Life, and UFOs, a memoir, anomalous books, you can order from Amazon by clicking the link on 21stCenturyRadio.com. Our guest for the next 20-some minutes is Bud Hopkins, Art, Life, and UFOs, a memoir, anomalous books, you can order from Amazon by clicking the link on 21stCenturyRadio.com. And also, gosh, Rudy, Bud, we got this, uh, no, it's, a, it's not an email. This is off the web of uh, a new UFO documentary from James Fox. I'm sure you know all about this, right? Oh, yeah, I do. It's mm-hmm. called I Know What I Saw. Yep. You want to say anything about it? Well, it's uh, I, I've seen it, uh, and it's it, it has a, a kind of focus on the... Uh, conference, press conference that uh, James Fox and Leslie Kane organized in, in November of nineteen of 2007 in Washington. And um, it has uh, parts of that, that press conference which are so important because the people who were speaking were officials, government people. There were two generals, retired uh, people from, uh, I think, uh, as I remember, um, seven or eight co- different countries, and um, 
their segments are going to be uh, in that film, and of course it's also going to be a kind of a history of uh, how the UFO phenomenon um, unfolded in the United States and worldwide. And it's it's very well done, and I highly recommend it. It's going to be, uh, I think, a, a major film. Okay, that opens, well, opens. <laughs> it's going to be on tonight. I guess it might have been started, but it's also on tomorrow night as well on the History Channel. Uh, thank you. Thank you, bud. Uh, now, we talked about your first UFO sighting. Uh, how, how might have this UFO sighting affected your painting? Well, I think one of the things that was that I began doing, and I didn't really con- in my painting, and I didn't really connect it with the UFO phenomenon, was that I, I sort of calmed the painting down and made it uh, the compositions a little more orderly, a little more hierarchical. And the interesting thing was that they, uh, for the next twenty years, were dominated more or less by uh, a circle uh, mm-hmm. as a central form. Uh, some of those circles, they were all different. Uh, some of them uh, in the early examples, and some of those are reproduced in the uh, in my book, um, had a big black circle in the center with some forms kind of uh, speeding into it. And the black circle could be read either as a, uh, a hole in the painting uh, that you're looking into or a black thing on top of the other forms. I mean, I deliberately uh, jiggled the space of the painting in such a way that it was extremely ambiguous. And um, I had uh, the uh, German actor uh, uh, Maximilian Schell, who had bought some paintings of mine, said that he really thought that they that the UFO experience had, had influenced the work. And I said, oh, I don't think so. You know, the artists don't like to admit that anything influenced them. Well, nothing's so, ever nothing's ever influenced me in all my life. Oh, of course not. No, it it's all yeah. original thinking. Yeah, I think the so, president's uh, trying to reach you right about now. Yeah, that's a, that's a, <laughs> an accident. Yeah, President Obama. But the point is that uh, I think that um, uh, no, I, I I put him on hold. You know. Yeah, good thing. <laughs> but but the thing is that I I do I believe that there were uh, so, there was some sort of. Uh, a spillover from those experiences into the paintings. And uh, what happened is my, my paintings began to get a little more structured and calmer, uh, as if they were a little more um, classical and and uh, emotionally steady than they had been before. Uh, in a strange way, that happened after the sighting instead of the opposite. You, one might have thought that it went the other way around, that it was... <laughs> I would have gotten very discombobulated after the sighting in the in the work, but the opposite happened. And ultimately, I started making um, temples, guardians, and altars. I'll and say, um, wow. oh, uh, so those those forms all really kind of came from um, the way my work had been developing. Anyway, there's nothing magical about that, but I do think it was of influence. Yeah, I, yeah, I, and once again, how fortunate to know what those influences are. You know, I think that. Most artists would have died before they figured that out. <laughs> no, well, no, really, because they, they, they don't, yeah. just like you say in the book repeatedly, that, that many artists do not ever want to talk about what influences them, or that, in fact, if anything influences them, but we're always, always been influenced. You know, uh, de Kooning, who was a very sharp, uh, sly man, when he was asked uh, what artists influenced him, and he said all of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a good one. You can't get around that. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. But in November 1975, George Obarski, and he was quite a character. I really enjoyed reading this stuff. You're a good writer. He was a remarkable guy. And he had a UFO encounter in North Hudson Park. Tell us what happened. Well, um, George Obarski uh, had uh, a little liquor store across the street from me on 16th Street. And um, I used to go in there and get my wine for dinner and all that. And he he was a big talker, but in a in a funny way. He was always complaining and griping and so forth, uh, usually about politics. And we never ever mentioned anything about UFOs or art. I mean, two subjects I saw he had no interest in. It. And one day I walked in and he said, 
I don't know what he's pacing around behind his counter. He's, I don't know what the world's coming to. A van could be coming home at night, and this thing could come down and land next to his car and scare you half to death. And I said, what, what's that, George? And what unfolded was uh, an incredible uh, experience in a landing of, a, of an object, of uh, UFO, uh, roughly 35 feet in diameter or something like that, in a uh, park on the Jersey Shore, uh, the Jersey Palisades, uh, right opposite um, about 86th Street in Manhattan. I mean, this is like one mile from Broadway, literally. And these figures got out and uh, dug soil samples in seconds while he's in his car looking dumbfounded. And uh, then the thing took off, and he had some very colorful ways of describing uh, what happened and how it looked and so forth. Uh, he described the, uh, uh, the, the little figures that got out. He said in one piece where he was some kind of one-piece outfit, he said they looked like kids in snowsuits. And very interestingly, uh, I have run into two later accounts uh, of the same kind of saying, oh, well, these were actually abduction accounts. It seemed to be. And um, in these two later accounts amongst, you know, thousands, uh, the witnesses said that they looked like kids in snowsuits. <laughs> and, of course, what's interesting here is that uh, the honesty of that is that you take something that's unbelievable and you reduce it down to something that you're trying to help the person see what you saw. And so you use a sort of a childish or, or dumb uh, image. Uh, if you're trying to do the opposite, you might say, uh, and you're making it up, they were beautiful and they had long flowing hair and robes and they, this and that. That's, and the kind I, that's the kind I like, bud. That's what you yeah. like. No, but you know right away you're in trouble because <laughs> what they're doing is kind of elevating the thing to some level, at, uh, a godlike level, that, that uh, is going to be very impressive. But to say that it looked like kids in snowsuits is to, um, you know, it, it's to kind of reduce the thing in such a way that uh, shows you're really telling the truth. And incidentally, just one, one uh, thing I would like to mention, I didn't put this in the book, but... Um, when there was a television program done about this uh, sighting, it became a very big story because there was another witness who saw the whole thing from uh, uh, another point of view, a doorman. And George was interviewed on this program, and uh, it was not a program with an audience, so I was, I was not on the program. I was standing out around watching it. And I said to George when he's going on, I said, George, they might try to question your honesty or something. And I said, tell them immediately about the other witness who confirmed what you saw. You know, and describe what the witness said he saw. So when Joyce was on the program, the uh, rather smarmy uh, interviewer said, well, uh, uh, i got to ask you these things, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Barsky. Is there any, al uh, any um, uh, insanity in your family or is there any alcoholism and, you know, these sorts of things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, did you really see this? And, George, and I'm sitting back there thinking, George, tell him, you know, tell him about the other witness. And George looks this man in the face and he says, well, I tell you, he said, uh, I'm 72 years old or whatever he was. And he said, uh, uh, I've lived a long life, and a man doesn't live a long life and tries to be as honest as he can be and then throws it all away by making up something. He said, I saw this. Mm -hmm. And he did not rely on another person to back up his story. He just, and, and I can tell you that when he said this, uh, it was a lot more eloquent and emotional than I'm making it. But when he said this, the cameramen and so on were turning to each other and kind of, uh, you know, doing the little circle with their thumb and forefinger and waving their hands like, gee, that's mm -hmm. great. Yeah. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, maybe in the same show or something close to it, UFO bunkers, as you know, are the least studied and least knowledgeable about UFO research. And after the Village Voice article you wrote on the North Hudson Park case, yeah. you, you turned the table on a skeptic who told you why UFOs can't possibly exist. 
This is your answer was classic. This we've we've got to do a, a write up and put this in a book. Uh, well, maybe we'll just use your book all the time. But what what did you say to him? You, you really, this was quite an inspiration. Well, this was on a, on a radio program, and the guy was saying, "Look, this can't have happened. Uh, you can't whatever you space travel is impossible. You can't get here from there." And even if you could, the spacecraft would not be round like you're describing these things, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the, the figures who wouldn't look like that and they wouldn't take soil samples and so on. These are the reasons why this didn't happen. And he was posing as the skeptic. And I said to him, well, you know, it seems to me like in terms of skepticism that I'm the skeptic and you're the true believer. You know before you've heard anything about this case that it couldn't have happened because you have this list of beliefs uh, about space travel and what they would look like and what they would or would not do. And I said, I don't really know any of those things. I have to look into this, these uh, cases to, to find out whether there's anything to support them or not. So I said, I'm the skeptic who's trying the evidence and you're the true believer who knows in advance uh, that it didn't happen. Uh, that was precious. That really was. I, that's got to be. But then, then again, there is the curious case of Dr. Carl Sagan. Oh, boy. Yes, I know. And we, you know, we, we're running out of time, but we've got to definitely touch on this and a little bit on Heineck and a little on Leslie Keene. But Dr. Carl Sagan, please review the two faces of Dr. Carl Sagan and why you think he couldn't act truthfully. Well, the, the thing is, I don't really know what fake, what Sagan uh, really did know or not know about the subject. But when we were on a program together and he approached me uh, in the green room, it's a long story that I go into in the book, but um, uh, I, he, he, uh, he used the, uh, the skeptic's favorite mantra, which is uh, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. And I said, well, Carl, uh, I think what we have to say about this phenomenon is this extraordinary phenomenon with the, all of the reports, the photographs, the astronaut sightings, the pilot and everything, all of this evidence. Uh, whatever you think about the evidence, it is an extraordinary phenomenon. He said yes. And I said, well, shouldn't we be saying instead that extraordinary phenomenon demands an extraordinary investigation? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And you say that to a scientist and you really put him on the spot. Because what he's, all he's sort of left with is, uh, I don't know enough about the evidence, or I, you know, it just sort of mutters and so forth. But he was, I think, really thrown by that. And uh, actually, when I began the uh, Intruders Foundation, that became our slogan, an extraordinary phenomenon demands an extraordinary investigation. And, and how can any scientist uh, kind of put that down? Well, uh, and I, then he... He agreed with you that if there was an important case, a really good case, uh, you contact him and he'll he'll work on it with you. And of yeah, course, he'll look into it with me. And yeah. I waited until I got a case uh, of a student actually at Cornell where he was teaching, and it was a very very good case and a very touching letter and so forth. And so I sent a copy with the student's permission uh, to uh, Sagan, and I put out, I found a very a generous proposal that we get together and we can look into this. And I said, if you're, if there's any kind of uh, hypnosis that would be involved, I said, you can get somebody from the psychology department to do it. I don't have to do it. Uh, I just want to be there. <clears throat> and I said, we'll, we'll just work together on this. And I said, whatever, whatever we learn and whatever you learn, um, it's going to be helpful, you know, to both of us. And uh, he sent me about a month later, like this little short uh, reply saying he didn't find this an interesting case. The man had a scar on, uh, on his leg from the incident, and it's a, it's a whole long, complicated thing. But uh, he was just uh, bowing out because it was better for him to kind of pontificate on television and sort of uh, tut-tut the whole subject and so forth than it was to actually get his hands dirty by looking into something. Yeah, well, I'm sure you remember Phil Class, but Phil Class had some real classics, like the one I thought was a really classic one, was when something was brought up about UFO, piece of evidence. He and Phil Class would say, yeah. "I've got, I've got the answer to that, but it's in the, it's in the glove compartment of my car outside, and we don't have time to go out and get it." 
And, of course, at the end of the show, they said, okay, go get it. He said, well, yeah. it's not out there. Yeah. And they said, you made it up? He said, well, you know, I thought it was out there, but now I realize I didn't have it there. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, well, he was... I have to say this. I don't like to speak ill of my fellow human beings, but this man was essentially despicable, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think he was worse than despicable. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you heard, you know, you read what NASA wrote about him after he passed on as being most unreliable. And yep, yet, and yet absolutely. they were referring. <laughs> he was all well, over, I, no, he was all over the media. I'm sorry. Right. Well, when I quoted uh, something, excuse me, outrageous that he had said to Carl Sagan, I said, your man, class, and Sagan immediately sort of put up his hand. He said, he's not my man, <laughs> yeah. like he didn't want to be connected with him. Now, you had a wonderful relationship with J. Alec and Hynek, uh, yep. uh, but there was something that really was adorable. He related to you, damn it, bud, you make a strong case for abductions, and I don't like it because I don't <laughs> accept it. <laughs> I don't accept it more easily. I if I thought the aliens made mistakes. And after after his passing, you discovered aliens made a lot of mistakes. Many mistakes. Yeah. So what kind of mistakes were they making? Well, uh, I mean, putting the wrong clothes on the wrong people, like the, uh, like the group of people. That, and when they dress them, they put the wrong shirt on somebody. Um, and the, one of the more amusing and sad, weird things was a woman uh, I'd worked with uh, who had got a, she had bought a new, uh, a rather lacy um, nightgown from <laughs> Victoria's Secret. And when she woke up, after remembering certain things that happened, she was wearing this big, bulky, green man's T-shirt, <laughs> which made us wonder how the guy woke up, you know. Uh, I like the one with the earrings, too. The, 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 yeah, well, the, the, can you imagine so someone, many. Yeah, can you imagine all of a sudden inheriting diamond and gold earrings when you just had plastic ones? Well, you know, that that's just wonderful. We're, we're about out of time. There, I'm so sorry. There are so many good parts in this book. Dr. John Mack, you noted he regarded the physical evidence of UFOs such as scoop marks as worthless, which I thought to be really strange. Really strange. I don't quite understand that one. Yeah, but I don't either. Let's end, though, with Leslie Keene. You noted what her important work before. Absolutely. Um, uh, Leslie Keene, what are her contributions to that landmark 2007 international press conference in about a minute? Can you do it in a well, minute? She, well, she actually got these people together, uh, and uh, together with James Fox, but she w she did all the legwork, really. And uh, what she got to, as an example was uh, a um, an Iranian general, um, Parvish Jafari, who had been involved in a, a famous kind of dogfight over Tehran in 1976 um, with UFO. And um, she got uh, uh, Comandante uh, Oscar Santa Maria from Peru, who had been in the same kind of a dogfight uh, over a, a major Peruvian airbase um, a few years later. And we sat around it the dinner table where the two of them, uh, Santa Maria was being translated, uh, Jafari Spokes English, were comparing like, like two old RAF fighter pilots about what happened and what their planes did and how this, these things maneuvered and so forth. It was absolutely stunning. Um, and uh, she is working on a book uh, on all of these uh, uh, these major political figures and, and generals and so forth. I think her book is going to have five generals' testimony in it. Good heavens. Uh, so yeah. it's, 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 it'll be coming out next summer, and you're going to have to have her on the program. It's really a major a major piece of work. Uh, well, so, uh, so, so that her work and that accomplishment is part of that new UFO documentary of I Know What I is. Saw. Absolutely. They're, they're, they work together uh, closely, and... Uh, Incidentally, let me ask you a question. Yes, sir. Did you enjoy reading the book? Apart I from loved that? it. I had a great time. And I am, Good. you see, with my insane schedule, I had to read your entire book, and I did it uh -huh. in one day. Now, I'm not a fast reader, but there were yeah. parts of it that were so funny. And I'm uh -huh. sorry we couldn't I could get to the many of the other parts parts of it. Uh, your love lives are just wonderful. I mean, that <laughs> that was a movie in itself. Uh, well, I, I, wanted, I wanted the book to be uh, enjoyable and have all of the texture of my life, including the bad stuff and the 
intimate stuff and the funny stuff and the UFO stuff and the art stuff and the on and on and the political, all of these things, uh, because I, I felt a responsibility to the reader that I wanted to this to be a good experience for them. And well, uh, that's what I've, I've hoped. That's why I asked the question. Well, it's a, I had a wonderful experience at all day, all day. <laughs> it took me 12 hours. Uh, run, racing against the time, not answering any phone calls and everything, but it was really just extraordinary. And then, once again, when it was over, I was sorry it was over. I wish you would have written 600 more pages, because because of the the story qualities. And I can I can I remember some of the places up in New York you were talking about, and then, yeah. and that really um, that that really excited me a great deal to think about those kind of things. Thank you for joining us, Bud. It's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you. And get a haircut and shine your shoes. Okay. Are you wearing a tie tonight? No, well, I'm going to hang on the thumbs. Okay. <laughs> okay. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington. And I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus.